0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Well, thank you very much for introducing me. And uh, it's very lovely being here with you all. It's always a difficult talking here because you can't always see everyone, but uh, I think I can see most people now. Um, Yeah, as uh, Papadarshini said, I was in India. Actually, I was in India earlier in the year. I haven't just come back from India. I was in India in um, February and March, and um, that was my first trip to India, and uh, it was everything people told me it would be and uh it was both wonderful and horrible <laughs> i loved it and i hated it um but i want to go back um so i guess there's more love than uh, hate um just out of interest how many of you here have been to india okay so it's uh good third of you and how many of you've been to Budgaya? okay this reasonable number of people have been to Bukhara. So when I came back from India, um, well, for those of you who haven't been to India, India is quite a uh, an experience. Um, it's very different to uh, England, um, and uh, actually I was a little bit disappointed when I arrived because apart from the taxi drive from the airport to the hotel, which was um, like dodgems, you know what they are. Sort of uh, uh, everyone told me it was like that, so I wasn't surprised, but. Um, I sort of quite enjoyed it, really, you know, the cows in the middle of the road, and uh, not just in the middle of the road, but in the middle of the motorway, um, you know, on, on that aisle down the carriageway, not munching at the flowers or rubbish, as they do, and uh, I was a bit disappointed, because the hotel I was staying, it was very quiet, I said, India's, you know, that you never get peace and quiet, so at first I thought it was in the wrong country, but uh, by the time I got to Pudgaya uh, I realised that um, India had found me at last or I had found India. And um, my whole um, view of England has been altered as a consequence. I mean, I, th- I find um, things like uh, rubbish in the street sort of now in England quite um, unremarkable. I don't get upset because in India there's just rubbish everywhere. And uh, um, being here in the Buddhist centre, which sometimes can feel a bit noisy, is it's like this is the most quietest place you probably could find in India. And by comparison, this is absolutely nothing. So it changes your whole perspective on things. The traffic's just completely chaos. People are hooting all the time, dodging in and out of each other. There's a little space, you get into it. You don't say, after you. No, after (laughs) you. You're like, get out of the way and get in there. And it always seems to be quite friendly. I didn't see any punch-ups or anything. And... uh, uh, apparently, every, most people in India have had an accident once in their life, which isn't surprising because uh, at least people live in the cities. Um, so, yeah, I, I went to India. And um, I didn't just go to India. I, I went to Delhi, spent a few days in Delhi, went to Taj Mahal, did a bit of tourism. But my main reason for going to India was to participate in a, um, a gathering of um, the Order. It was, it's the, it was the International um, Convention uh, order convention um, unfortunately there weren't that many westerners there but there were about 500 Indians and about 150 westerners so there was a good collection of people um, fellow um, sister no, fellow and lady <laughs> um, what's the fellow both men and women <laughs> order members um, and um, we spent uh, I spent nearly two and a half weeks in uh, Budgaya and um, I just loved it. It was, uh, it was just a wonderful place to be. It was wonderful because that is the place where the Buddha gained enlightenment. And uh, it was very significant for us to have our order gathering in, in that place. And it was truly amazing having, there was, I know some of you here um, were there with me, um, having 500 order members sitting so close to the spot that the Buddha sat over two and a half thousand years ago, um, when he gained en- en- enlightenment, and um, it was yeah, doing that for five five or six days with all these people, and then sitting there more or less every day for nearly three weeks. Either, you know, usually with a couple of friends, just sitting um, um, close by the tree or um, in the shade of another tree, just sitting there meditating in the mornings. Um, So, um, yeah, Budh Gaya is an interesting place. Two and a half thousand years ago, you sort of imagine it to be quite different from today. Um, When you go to the place where the Buddha gained enlightenment, um, you see this big tree, which I understand is about the third generation of trees since the Buddha's time. So, it's. um, Anyway, I'm going to try and work that grandson bit out. But, uh, say. I think it's the third generation. It's an old tree. Um, looks as if like it's seen better days. And um, but all around this tree there are other trees because it's sort of is in a bit of a grove. But there's just a massive, great temple that uh, rises up just in front of the spot where the Buddha gained enlightenment. And um, all around that there are um, stupas or Tibetan chortans, um and other little shrines and. Uh, other little temples all around the, the tree. It's just a big park full of places to go and sit and uh, meditate. So there you have this nice grove, little temple, well, big temple, um, pretty big, rises massively up into the air. And um, yeah, it's in a very small town in India. In fact, it's not even really a town, it's just a sort of, it's more than a village, but somewhere between. And so, you know, you would imagine you could sit there nice and quiet, there, soaking up the atmosphere, and just feeling, wow, this is where the Buddha, danging lightning. Now, it would be like that if you were deaf, <laughs> um, because it would be very quiet then. But if you have um, relatively normal hearing, um, there's a sort of cac- cac- cacophony of sounds going on all around you. First of all, you have um, the traffic. Just outside, so you get constant honking of horns and uh, um, and shouts, and then the vendors trying to sell people things. Tourists are going to see this the the temple, and uh, but once you get into the temple, the real noise starts because you have everyone chanting the refugees and precepts. So you get the Sinhalese going. But they don't just do it like that. They do it on a loudspeaker. <laughs> so it's sort of like... And then you get the, um, um, the Koreans or others going... And they're all doing Except for the Tibetans, who seem to go... And, and they all throw themselves down... and they're getting up and diving down again, one after the other. It's so inspiring just watching. They do it hours after. And sometimes they get up and they have a little chat, and then they carry on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if, if you turn up with no cushions, they give you some cushions. And they're very friendly. And it's, it's a wonderful sort of atmosphere of um, being in this space. So I thought, this is going to be um, um, challenging to be able to meditate in this spot. So the first day, I sat down there, and, uh, you know, at, uh, I think it was about six thirty in the morning, thinking that it would be quite relatively quiet. Actually, it was more noisy about the time. I think it quietened down about eight, and then it became noisy again. But uh, I, I managed to discover on the actually, was, even on the first day, I managed to have sort of become quite absorbed in meditation, and um, seemed to forget about the sounds. And then, uh, in subsequent days, I discovered that if I listened to the sound of the birds, all the other sounds seemed to just Fall away. It wasn't as though they weren't there, but they somehow receded in the background. It's it's a bit like when your mind focuses on one thing, like your finger. You can have a sense of everyone sitting there behind you, looking at you. um, But you don't have to pay too much attention to them. So you know know they're there. But doing that allowed me to imaginatively take that leap back in history, back in time, um, two and a half centuries ago, to when the Buddha was alone in that whole area, just wandering around, more or less alone, because he did meet um, someone during that time. And I would go there and sit there and then gradually just tune in to the fact this is where the Buddha gained enlightenment. And uh, having, been Buddha, for, um, mistake, <laughs> having been a Buddhist for... That was a mistake. Having been a Buddhist, a follower of the Buddha, um, for the last um, 30-something years... Um, yeah, it's very significant for me to be at the place where um, the Buddha gained enlightenment. And I'd sat, I found when I was sitting there, something happened, just being in that place, just tuning in, just being around so many people. who had such a very, very strong um, expression of faith and, uh, and confidence in the Buddha's teaching. And when I came back to England after that experience... I just felt, well, I'd like to share something of that experience with you. But, you know, I don't just want to tell you about my holiday in India and uh, what India's like, so I thought I'd better talk about the Buddha's enlightenment. Because in a way, it sort of takes us back to that spot. And uh, um, it's, it's good to remember that for a Buddhist, that is the holiest place in the universe. Not just in the world, but it's in the universe. That is where the Buddha for the first time in any history that we know of, gained a state that no one else has ever gained. It's not just like, you know, people have done it all the time and it's just happened to be, um, someone happened to do it, two and a half thousand. years. It's the first time. I mean, in some Buddhist traditions, there is a a history of other Buddhas that almost exist outside of time and we seem to be in the... um, in, in that, in a family of Buddhas, but the the time scales are so large that they seem to go into sort of mythical proportions. So when you are in, are in a place and you think you're in the world, it's difficult to think of the universe extending for aeons of no, countless numbers of um, kalpas of miles um, into different directions. Kalpa is uh, an imaginably large number, and uh, it's difficult to you know just. Think of um, of the universe in that way in time, but um, at least in this world, in in our his history, this is the first time something of an enormous magnitude happened. So it's become the holiest place in the world, and it's so wonderful today because it's actually owned by, or at least it's used by Buddhists. It wasn't that long ago when the Hindus, um, Brahmins, would you have to pay them to. Allow, get them to say the refuges and precepts for you. In fact, um, a friend of mine, in the, about the um, shortly after I was ordained in the seventies in India, he went to put He had to; he wasn't allowed to go and say the refuges and precepts. He had to get a Hindu Brahmin to say them for him. But nowadays, it really is owned by Buddhists and for the Buddhists. So, if you get the chance and you want to go to India and you want to go to this holiest place um, in the universe, then I'd really recommend you go. I wouldn't recommend you go in March because in March it's starting to get very hot and it got very hot by the time I left. It was getting to that heat where you just want to lie in your bed under a fan um, all day um, and then in the evening get up and wander around. It's that sort of heat. But um, January is a good time to go and uh, apparently the autumn is, is a very good time. So I got there by going flying from um, Manchester to Dubai Dubai to Delhi and then from Delhi I caught a train which is a whole experience in itself um, a 12 hour train journey overnight to Gaia which is another experience in itself because you walk out and you think you've sort of walked into a war zone with bodies everywhere and they're just sleeping actually at 4 o'clock in the morning and um, and then being taken to a house of some um, followers of Dr. Ambedkar who've described themselves as communists and um, don't think they really were communists. They, they're more like Marxists, but uh, they're quite incredible people who are you know, doing things that I sort of didn't think I'd ever meet people like that who actually sort of would um, take over land and build a village and fight off anyone who um, said they owned it. And, uh, you know, they put... Well, I actually watched a photograph of the guy I was sitting in the room with being shot by the police, you in a, in a, um, know, where the police got very frightened and they were trying to keep this demonstration of about 50 people at bay. So like start sh- shooting them. And it's just meeting sort of some very, very interesting characters there. And then going from there around um, Gaia for a little bit to Gaya, which actually is relatively civilized in a Western sense to, to, to Gaia. And, um, and there you meet quite a lot of tourists and people from all over the world. The Buddha's journey was a bit different. The Buddha was born on the um, foothills of the Himalayas, probably on the Nepalese border, and um, he wandered all around um, the, the, the north of India, and eventually found his way down into the plains. So, if you could imagine India, uh, India is enormous. When you look at the map, it's sort of actually much longer than it is wide, and it goes, you know, right from. The south from the equator, more or less, right up into um, Tibet, and I was startled when I opened up a map of India. Actually, how large it it is. But he he moved down from the foothills, um, probably through a lot of jungle, and Indian jungle isn't quite like I imagined it to be. It's not full of sort of damp, you know, um, a tropical sort of sense. It's like shrubs, but it would have been quite um, wild and been full of dangerous animals and things. And he walked from village to village, probably along following the rivers, um, which were the main routes of communication in those days. And he eventually came to this spot, um, and uh, he chose to sit down in this um, um, spot where he gained enlightenment. His journey there started some time before, when he realised he had to leave his comfortable life, and he had to go off and seek for this Something, this state, I don't suppose he quite knew what he was seeking for, but he knew he had to go off searching for a state that he could release, where he was released from um, the bonds of being a sort of conditioned human being. It said that he saw three sights, four sights, three sights being um, old age, someone who was diseased, and uh, a dead body. And uh, These still were the sights you often see in India. Well, I didn't see any dead bodies apart from animals, I think, but uh, you can see them in India. And um, it just made him aware of what life is like. And he followed. Um, then the fourth sight was a, um, a wanderer, a holy man, who was trying to, who was striving for some higher state of perfection, and uh, he followed in the footpaths of this um, holy man, not literally footpaths of this person, but he followed tr- the tradition of giving up all the household life for his clothes, fine clothes and he went off and wandered in the forest. Found a couple of meditation teachers experienced high states of consciousness, decided that wasn't going to help him particularly and then he became a ascetic and started starving himself thinking well actually if he didn't eat anything and um, hardly drank anything and just Lived in, in the conditions, whether the heat or cold, this would be a way of releasing him from the sensuous desires of worldly experience and he would be free. And it said he, his physical condition was such that if he placed his finger on his belly, he could feel his spine. Um, now, Buddhism is full of um, poetic imagery and metaphors. And um, we don't know even know if he actually saw three sites, but. All these things, and when you read the Buddhist texts, you have to remember you can't overtake everything completely literally, but they all have a poetic meaning. So you you try to open yourself to what they mean. So the Buddha must have been a very thin, um, starved human being, and uh, with his ribs sticking out, and uh, and um, yeah, just barely alive by the time he was um, um, sitting under the Bodhi tree. So he did this for quite a few years and he said no one ever practiced austerities as severely as he did. But in the end he decided that these weren't helping him gain enlightenment. But for some reason he decides that he's going to give that up and sit down and um, just stay seated for uh, a long time till he gains enlightenment. So someone offers him some rice pudding, which he eats and makes him feel a bit better. And then um, he collects some grass from a grass cutter, and he takes it and he sits down under the Bodhi tree in what's now become Gaya, And uh, he sits down facing east, apparently, for various reasons, and he just sat there, probably in full lotus, like this. He wouldn't have looked like this at all. I mean, we always have images of the Buddha like this, but he would have been wearing filthy rags, probably. Maybe he washed them in the river, because there's a big river that runs by, although today I think it hardly ever has any watering, probably because of irrigation. Um, but he would have been really like a tramp, long, sort of unkempt hair, thin rags covering bits of his body. And he just sat there, probably. When he crossed his legs, and mainly bones just crossing and sitting there. And he decided not to move. He wasn't going to move until he gained the state of enlightenment. And he takes this vow. Though my skin, my nerves, and my bones shall waste away and my lifeblood go dry, I will not leave this seat until I have attained the highest wisdom called supreme enlightenment that leads to everlasting happiness. So he has this determination just to sit there and not move. And um, he starts doing the mindfulness of Breathing. I don't know if you did it with accounting, but you just watched the breath coming in and going out. Coming in and going out. And as you sit, watching your breath come in and going out, um, if you do it for a while and you let all the other thoughts, all the things that are bothering you, fall away. I mean, the Buddha had a probably relatively unbusy life. He didn't have a mobile phone and uh, communication systems and lots of people he had to keep in touch with. He was all alone and uh, quite happy to be alone just sitting there with the birds in the trees and the mosquitoes buzzing and all the other insects and just sitting there watching his breath coming in going out coming in going out and gradually his mind becoming quieter and quieter and then he um we have to also remember he sits there in the evening because it's you know hot in the day it's not a great time to meditate so he's sitting there in the evening, and just imagine it, right, there's this grove of trees, big trees, not sort of like um, chestnuts, they've sort of got leafier, the branches are a bit spread out and things. And a bit of scrub around you, you don't quite know what's in, in the scrub. And it's in a little bit of a, yeah you know, it's a grove and a little bit of a hollow um, where he sat. And he's just sitting there and it's night time. But It's the full moon. It's the eve of the full moon, which is why we have Wesak on the full moon of May. So it's this time in May when the Buddha was sitting in this grove and the big moon come up in the sky, sitting there meditating, peace and quiet. Lovely. What happened next? Well, as usually happens when we sit... Quietly, and we're just beginning to drop into that deeper, quiet calm of medista- meditation. We get disturbed. Might be a noise. Might be there's a traffic going out. Someone shouting. There's a sudden bang, um, or something. Um, or it might be that our mind becomes disturbed with thoughts. And what happened to the Buddha is it said that it suddenly became very, very dark. Very dark. And then there was this big army approaching. A massive army of soldiers carrying all sorts of weapons coming towards him. And it's said that the, um, a figure that we call Mara, the evil one, um, sent his army to attack the Buddha, to put him off meditating. And the Buddha just sat there watching this great army of terrifying proportions coming to annihilate him. But um, he just sat there and sat there, and nothing happened to him. All the arrows and all the spears and all the weapons that were fired at him just turned to flowers. And so the Buddha just was able to defeat the army of Mara. Um, so Mara, the evil one, coming as he is, and because the Buddha happened to be a man, I mean he could have been a woman, but he was a man. And what did Mara do? He got his most beautiful daughters together, and he got them looking like very seductive young ladies, thinking this will distract the Buddha. Maybe he can put up with armies, but no way he's going to be able to put up with the most seductive females in the world. So he sends them, but then they just seemed to transform into old hags, you know, sort of really old ladies who um, don't want to, you know, be disrespectful to the the elderly. But, um, I mean, I think they were sort of quite unpleasantly old (laughs) and and ugly. And it was a transformation um, that um, the Buddha saw. And, of course, they were totally unattractive to him in that state. So Mara retires, he, he retreats, he realises he cannot disturb um, the Buddha. And uh, there's a number of things we could learn from this. Um, the imagery of this first um, experience. is that, first of all, when we start making progress in our spiritual lives, when we start getting somewhere, you know, whether it's in terms of calming our mind, becoming more mindful, becoming quieter, then it's as though we attract towards us difficulties, things that, um, it's as though... No one's going to bother with us while we're not much use. You know, but as soon as we become a little bit more... Um, make some progress on, on our spiritual life, it's as though the forces of, um, that are going to, to block you and stop you get in the way. And all sorts of either difficulties arise between people and oneself and others. Um, people... I mean, probably very few of us have enemies these days. I mean, I was at the gym today and I thought... If I told some um, people going to the gym that they were parking in a disabled spot and they weren't disabled, they might have thumped me. And I thought I'd have had an enemy then. (laughs) But uh, I thought it was more appropriate just to remain calm and cowardly, go upstairs and forget about it. But um, I suddenly realised, sitting in that gym, that very few people have enemies. You know, you don't actually find someone who's looking for you to, you know, sort of. Duff you over. There he is. I'm oh, doing him over. But, you know, you have a lot of people in your life who are difficult, and uh, you fight, you know, you probably call them the enemy, and if you do the metabhavanal, which is the a difficult person. But um, that's the sort of people we attract to us sometimes when we're making progress on the spiritual life. Or we get very distracted by other things. You know, there's, there's other people. Um, it's, it was well known to me when I was younger, when I became a bit more confident and a little bit more um, relaxed and... Um, and so on, but I attracted people to me who were very distracting, and um, it co- caused complications in my life a little bit. So it was, you know, great to get older and uh, less attractive in that sort of way. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, you have to sit there and just sort of allow those things to um, fade away and just reflect, you know, on what happens over a period of time. Yeah, that's. That's, um, it, it, it could be either. You don't, in a way, I mean, the way we look at life is very psychological these days, but, you know, the Buddhist look at, um, you know, the tradition of Buddhism looks at things as, well, we don't know why things come up in our mind nowadays. We have all sorts of psychological reasons if something happened in, uh, in a pre, you know, earlier time in our life. But the Buddhist perspective, it could have happened in an earlier life. So you don't know, quite know which life, which earlier bit of which life something happened that's come up in you. But yeah, it's a useful way of seeing what happened to the Buddha and, and, and certainly what happens to you when you sit down to meditate and things come up. It's sometimes a good sign. It means you're making progress. You know, sometimes people get a bit despondent and think, oh, I can't get on with meditation, so much is coming up. But maybe you have to let things come up and you have to sort of let them go in order to make some progress. It's as though you open yourself up The things that you haven't really opened yourself up to before. And this can be like you're being attacked. can feel as though you're being attacked sometimes. Or you just get very distracted. Your mind doesn't want to stay calm. It's sort of a bit uncomfortable. Your ego is too threatened somehow. So you have all sorts of fantasies which um, take you off to other places. Okay, so there's this great storm. The Buddha um, Mara retreats. And the Buddha becomes calm again. Everything goes... Um, Quiet, and he goes into a deeper deeper and deeper experience of um, meditation, or a higher and higher level of experience of meditation. And it's said that he gradually begins to see not just this birth, this life that he's had, just looking back over his life, but it was as though he could look back over lifetimes of existence, one lifetime before another lifetime before another lifetime before another lifetime. And um, he goes on into a state of consciousness that surpasses all the states of consciousness that any human being has ever reached. It's as though his mind, if you like, like a warm air balloon, just rose up and rose up. And then the metaphor changes because it's not bound by gravity any longer. It just releases itself from the Earth's gravitational field and just moves out into... um, Not into space itself, because it would seem like a cold, dark place, a vacuous place, but it floats off into a brightness, um, into a spatial um, experience that we can't really, um, we can only sort of imagine just about with our minds, if we allow our minds to imagine in that way. So the Buddha was rising upwards and upwards, and um, he began as though a, as a looking down on humankind, just seeing all the things that happen to people, the way people are born, they go through their life and they die. And uh, it's as though whether you you know, find rebirth or rebecoming easy to, an easy thing to believe in, this is seemed to be how the Buddha things. You could see it as a metaphor if you wanted. Just like, what is the meaning? What's the point? You just get born, you go through life, and then you die. What's the point? And uh, the Buddha sort of rises up and he sees this whole thing going round. It could be just one person being born. Like just thinking now, thinking that all the millions of people, all the millions of babies, oh, hundreds of thousands of babies. I don't know how many babies are being born right at this moment in the world. But there are babies just taking their first breath. And there's an equal number of people breathing their last breath. All over the world, this is happening right at this minute, right now. And um, you know, if you sort of rose up and you saw all that, you might think, what's the point? What's, what's happening? But it's as though the Buddha could just leave that and just look at it and let it be. Um, so gradually his vision seemed to clear and he seemed to see things more and more clearly. And he saw that human beings um, at death were like, he said, it's like um, their being is laid out as though like a cloth, like the woven threads that make up a material unpicked and just laid out, um, or the threads of a garment are just laid out um, on the ground. And you just look down and it's as though... That was me. It's just that all the parts of us suddenly just disintegrate. And this is what is said to happen at the moment of death. Of course, consciousness, for some strange reason, seems to bring together a whole load of new parts that are very similar to the old parts, and you reconstruct another being, which you can't remember the old being, but somehow it's like waking up and forgetting who you were having amnesia. So it would probably be a bit like that rebirth, if, you know, if you'd like to imagine it. But um, the Buddha saw something that was supremely important to us. He saw, and this is often said, and it's said in such a way that it all seems oh so obvious, he saw that nothing, absolutely nothing, exists as an entity without conditions. That all things come about because of conditions there is nothing in this universe in the whole of world systems that exist outside of conditions everything comes into being because of conditions now this is a tremendous insight because when you think about it you cannot have a creator god because a creator god would have come about or wouldn't have come about would just been there as a condition But the Buddha saw that nothing like that was possible. That what we perceive of as things, whether it's a creator God, or even some idea that we have some sort of fixed nature that's there inside of us, pure and unblemished, like a Buddha nature or something, doesn't exist. That nothing exists on its own as a fixed entity. He saw that everything just is in a constant flow of change, changing itself as all the conditions that go to create it change. And um, when we say this and think about it, it all seems sort of, yeah, so what, let's you know, go along with that. But when you start really contemplating it, it begins to unpick your whole view of yourself, because probably most of us have a pretty fixed view of ourselves. We think we are this and that and the other. And uh, we know we change because, you know, our bodies change as we get older and perhaps some of our views change as we get older. But, in um, in any present moment is as though we are a really solid thing. You know, if, if your life's threatened, you feel a tremendous um, urge to defend yourself. And, uh, you know, you can't just think, oh, well, you know, it's death coming along, just it's not a change. It's as though, you know, we, we're wired to um, safeguard this thing that we call ourselves, and um, this is in Buddhism what is what is called um, pratichasamatpala or condition conditionality is where things only arise in dependence upon conditions. And if you use that particular view, you can actually determine what is Buddhism, or what is the Buddha's Dharma, and what is not. And um, Sometimes even Buddhists fall into the trap of fixing a number of things and um, start relating to them as though they really exist. So it's something that's very, very deep and difficult to understand, and, um, but one should constantly reflect on it and see how you relate to things that you hold precious and just see well, they're only there because of all these conditions. Anyway, so the Buddha has this experience and uh, he goes on sitting through the night. And not only does he sit through the night, but he sits through the next day. Then he sits through the next night and he sits through the next day and he doesn't get up in between. So he doesn't get up and get a drink or go to the toilet. He just sits there for seven days. Now that is completely inhuman. And that would seem to suggest that the Buddha became something different. I mean, can you imagine anyone sitting for seven days without moving? Maybe. Maybe if you, you know, you could perhaps think of it. But it's not like that. And it's as though the Buddha becomes something other than a human being. It's not that he becomes a god or anything like that. But it's, um, and it may not even be the case. It may be that it's just sort of poetic um, um, fancy. And... uh, the Buddhist scriptures are full of sort of supernatural happenings. And I remember when I studied this with Banti, my teacher at Sangraksha, that um, he said, well, they're all there in the, in the, in the text. And someone said, yeah, but it can't really be true. And he said, well, how do you know? So, you know, we all assume that everything has to be material. You know, we can have an explanation for everything. But um, in the Buddhist text, sometimes we think, oh, that was just poetic license. But at the same time, we might actually reflect, well, maybe there are gods. Maybe there are ghosts. Maybe there are spirits. Maybe there are Buddhas and enlightened beings around us and what we might call angels um, sort of floating around listening to the talk. And uh, if you're able to see the world in this way, it's a much richer place. I mean, it's a bit boring being in a, you know, stuck on the earth um, sort of in one dimension, you know, just everything's horizontal, and uh, you've got time, of course, you know, there's another dimension. But imagine if you lived in a multi dimensional universe, you know, where all the sort of space movies that you watched actually really happen, you know, where you can travel through space to parallel universes, and you can, and all the fantasy stories that you read, such as uh, the Dark Material trilogy, where you, you move into a par- parallel, parallel universe by opening up a little spot and sort of climbing through it. And then you're suddenly, hey, this is different. And um, just imagine what life would be like. It would be so much richer, wouldn't it? You know, mobile phones would be so boring because, you know, there would just be so much more to explore. And uh, it would be much better than cyberspace, you know, where you can get lost because that's all just binary, just on and off switches and this is you know like a wonderful way of looking at the universe so that's the great thing about being a Buddhist you've got the license suddenly to think like that and uh, you know if, you, if you're sort of a bit materialistic in your views you can say well that's just being a poet in a way but that's great you know that's fine you can have it, that view and um, this is anyway how did I get to that so the Buddha was sitting there <laughs> for seven days <laughs> so he spent the first week Sitting there, just sitting there, completely happy, supremely happy. He had an experience that was non, of a non, non-rational kind. He just sat there and experienced um, the, the, his state of being. And then he had another week where he got up and he walked to the top of what's to like a little rise. There's a little temple there now, and he sat looking at the Bodhi tree. And it was as though he was like the first um, green piece, green pisa or a follower of Greenpeace, he just sat there, looked at this tree, and thought, wow, what a wonderful tree! There's a tree, I sat under that tree, and it, perhaps he wasn't even thinking, he was just looking at the tree, wow, and he stood or sat there for another seven days, just looking back at the place that he gained enlightenment. Now, this also, I don't know what this sounds like to you, you, know, me talking about this, but when you're actually at Gaya and you think, oh, the Buddha was up there then for a week, and you go up there, and you go, Wow, it's a great view from up here, and you see the tree, and you sort of imagine it without all the temples, and what a wonderful spot. You know, you have this amazing experience, and you go to another spot, and you just sit there, sort of absorbing it more and more. Anyway, then he, um, he sat looking at this tree, and uh, <coughs> in a way, he was sort of worshipping the tree, worshipping the spot where he gained enlightenment. There was nothing else to worship. No other way of showing gratitude. It's natural for human beings when someone when something happens to us that's so important, so meaningful, that we naturally want to express our gratitude to something or somehow. And this is what the Buddha did. He's as though he expressed his gratitude to the tree for sheltering him for seven days and seven nights under that spot. Then he spends another week walking up and down, and there's a little spot just close to where the Buddha. Um, Sat in the grounds where you can can't really walk up and down because there's like hundreds of people walking around, and if you want to go in the opposite direction, you've got to sort of go like this to to get through them all. You know, sort of moving them aside like parting the grass. Um, But the Buddha would have just walked up and down a spot maybe one and a half times the length of this room. I would say sort of is marked out by a stone monument there now, and he just sort of walked up and down walked up and down, just doing like a walking meditation, just again, another week, just walking up and down. We don't know if, it doesn't say sat down at all, just walked up and down for a whole week, floating up and down, um, probably would have been quite light, you know, because you hadn't eaten, just walking up and down. Back. Then he um, sits down in another spot, not far from there, and he starts... I guess his mind is, at this time, trying to make sense in some way of what had happened to him. He had this experience, which is incomprehensible to us. And he's trying to make sense of what happened to it. And it's said that he entered a dual chamber, a dual chamber of six colours, I think, six coloured jewels. Uh, it says, and other texts say it's as though his body just em- emanated light, these six colours that make up the colours of the Buddhist flag. And which I recently discovered was invented a hundred years ago. So anyway, but uh, it's as though when something really important happens to you, it's as though your body radiates light or radiates something because some people do seem to have that effect on you, don't you? You, you, see, you sort of walk into a room and you sort of go, wow, that's an interesting person. But when you look at them, you, you can't sort of think, well, it's not, it's not that beautiful or anything like that. It's just something about them that's just sort of really attractive. And it's as though this is what happened to the Buddha. Something was emanating from him that was very, very attractive. So he sits in this sort of dual chamber that either he created in his mind or this experience of just like radiating light as, as though things were somehow finding their place in his being. And he was able to sort of make a little bit more sense of what happened to him. He's in his fifth week now, he's just sitting under another tree um close by, and just um experiencing being there and then this big, this Brahmin comes along, so he's not alone now there's this Brahmin it's, and there's a bit of a Buddhist joke in the um scriptures because he's called something like uh a jatiha or something and this word a it's like uh-huh. <laughs> 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 And uh, he was a very conceited, that's what the word means, a a hunker. It's like, Uh tell me something new. And uh, this Brahmin came along and he saw this man sitting there and he approached him and he said to to the Buddha, you seem to know his name, Um, in what respect, O Venerable Gotama, does one become a Brahmin? And what conditions um, that make a Brahmin? So he said, "Hmm. tell me that then. And uh, the Buddha just sort of um, sees him and um, just says to him that um, the Brahmin is one who's discarded evil without conceit so he sort of speaks back to him is one who's not conceited who's free from defilement, self-controlled versed in knowledge and has led the holy life rightly, it's only he who can call himself a Brahmin now this is quite important in India because Brahmins are only born Brahmins in the Hindu system you can't become a Brahmin And uh, something people don't often realise when they about Hinduism, everything's fixed in terms of your relationship, right down a caste system. So many of our um, Buddhist um, brothers and sisters in India have left that whole system because there's no way of moving, and they were right at the bottom. And um, so, following Doctor Ambedkar, whose photograph is on the shrine there, they left that system and uh, and the whole of. um, So right from the beginning, the Buddha started relating to everything in the world in a different way. He no longer saw Brahmins as something fixed. He he gave a completely different definition. The Buddha then sits um, in the sixth week under another tree by a pond and uh, a storm um, rises. So from now on in India and for another six weeks, the Buddha would be sitting there. And then in six weeks' time will be about the time that the rains will start coming. <coughs> they may have come a bit earlier in that particular time of the Buddha. So the monsoon starts to come. and a storm arises. And it's said and again, we can you know one could make all sorts of guesses and uh, have you know, interpretations of this, but it's said that there was a serpent king living in this pond who rose up out and he wound himself like a cobra round seven times around the Buddha and um, guarded him and protected him from the cold and the rain. And he stayed like that for another week, looking after the Buddha. So it's as though nature, in some way or another, rose up and protected the Buddha. So there's some special relationship that goes on between ourself as a spiritual being and nature. And you sometimes get this. uh, Those of you who've ever been on a long retreat... (coughs) I had the opportunity of being at Guji in Spain where we have ordinations for men. We have 16-week retreats. And I remember when we've done ceremonies there, all sorts of very, very strange um, things happen. The weather suddenly changes. Quite, I mean, it happens so many times, it's a coincidence. You know, you're doing a puja, you're doing a ritual, and then suddenly the weather dramatically changes. I mean, it's not just like a little bit of mist comes in. You're sitting there one day, brilliant sunlight, few hours later it's a complete whiteout you can't see a thing, you don't even know if there's anything existing any longer because you're just in complete mist and that you think yeah yeah but that's just coincidence but it's happened so many times for coincidence to be not just coincidence and to think actually there does seem something odd here and uh, quite sort of frightening in a way when you start realising that the world and you are interconnected in of, in a way or even if you begin to think that you start thinking Oh, you know, when I <coughs> do things and and um, think things and um, practice things, it's actually having an effect on a much bigger scale than what I think. And you can't sort of really think, well, it's because your body language is saying something to another person and they get affected and another. Because we're talking about the weather here, you know. So how do you affect the weather? It's um, I don't know, but. Um, So, maybe this is sort of what the scriptures are getting at. There's some sort of special relationship between the Buddha and nature. And that's why we should really treasure nature. You know, it's not... I mean, we have this whole big thing about climate change, don't we? And it's sort of sometimes put across as though it's, you know, we've got to protect the climate (coughs) because of... um, yeah, you know, it's good to protect the climate. So we're we going to benefit from protecting the climate. I mean, none of us are going to benefit from protecting the climate because we'll be dead before the climate probably really changes. And um, although it's probably good to think we're not, you know, we are going to get affected by the next ice age. In, in those of you who are young, when you get a bit older, it's going to get really cold and you're going to be living under about 20 metres of snow. And, you know, if you think like that, you think, OK, I'm going to start using my carless and things. But... Actually, if you have a different relationship with nature and start thinking, well, actually, I'm somehow in mysteriously connected with nature, and what I do and how I treat nature has a big effect. So it's like it doesn't matter whether you, well, it, it maybe it matters <coughs> if you're a scientist and so on, but maybe it's more, it's certainly more, um, it's easier for me to imagine that if I use my car less, nature will be pleased. It's not that there's a thing called nature, because we already know that that things only arise in dependence, poor conditions and so on. But it's as though the whole relationship you have with the world and nature and things is somehow interconnected. It's almost like having the thought, I use my car less, has uh, already having an effect on nature. And having the thought, I don't care, I'm going to drive my car because it's more comfortable, is having an effect on nature, is having an effect on the world. So when you start thinking like this, it starts placing an enormous responsibility on you and what you're doing because you can't rationalise things away because you don't know you don't know who to argue with you don't know what to think really but you've just got this strange idea now that there is this relationship between you and nature the Buddha then sits for another week in his seventh week quite happily in this spot and this is the Buddha's enlightenment (coughs) and this is what he did for seven weeks in the area around the Bodhi tree he just sat there or he walked up and down and he was absorbing this experience. It's as though the experience of enlightenment doesn't just happen in a moment. It's as though you have a deepening, like you do when you meditate, as your mind becomes quieter and calmer, and you just go into a deeper state of experience and, uh, or expansiveness or brightness. And if you imagine that process going on and on and on and on, and no thoughts are arising, it's just as though you're in a sun... Um, state of consciousness where you don't need to have thoughts you're just sitting fully experiencing being totally present you don't want to be anywhere else you don't want to be in the future you don't want to be in the past you're just 100% present in this moment and you're experiencing perfect bliss in that way um, if you have that experience and it went on for long enough you would probably be th- come out of it first of all your mind wouldn't function in its normal way Anyone who's had any deep experience of dhyana or higher states of consciousness notices it's difficult to think afterwards. It's, if you want to do a study group, you do lots of meditation before it, you know, people usually sit there going. go, uh, you say, what do you think of that? And they go, oh, I don't know. Uh, it's as though your mind is not operating in that, hang on a minute, I've got an opinion about this. <laughs> and you come in with your opinion and views and so on. So it's when you let go of all that, it can take time to get going again. And it seems to have taken the Buddha about seven weeks, really, to get going. So just lastly, um, i just like to ask the question, what is a Buddha? You now, What is someone who's had this experience? Well, the great thing about Buddhism is you can't pin this down. This is an unknowable question. It's a bit like saying, well, I know what I am, I know what you are, but I don't know what the Buddha is. But then you start thinking, "I don't know what the Buddha is, maybe I don't quite know who you are." And maybe I don't quite even know who I am." You know, we' base so much importance to our own experience <coughs> as though we know ourselves. We know what's good for us, we know what's good for others, and it's unquestionable, because I know because I experience it. But That's just some sort of interpretation. Imagine if you can go through life just with this sense of "I don't know. All your views and opinions won't be that important. You, know, you have to have views and opinions to be able to navigate yourself down the street, because you, know, you need to get home. So you've got a, you know, got a view that you've got a home, so that's important. So you don't want to drop them all. But if you could hold everything much more lightly and not think, I don't believe that. So I'll say to you, OK, so Buddhists believe in rebirth. No, I don't believe that. What immediately happens is you harden and tighten. But just imagine if you allowed your mind to think, oh, well, maybe. Maybe. How do I know? How can I prove it? I can't go by my experience because I can't remember if I was born before. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. So why would you have an, a view that was so fixed, so absolutely certain, when you've got no experience of it? You don't know what you're going to do when you die. It's just a sort of something you've constructed in your mind, and you hold it as a view imagine if you could let go light and just live, float through life, thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe, you, nothing happens when you die, maybe you're reborn. And maybe this happens, maybe not. And you just sort of can be a little bit more equanimous to things. You can sit quietly, your mind can quieten down much more easily. You don't have to get worked up about things. You don't have to get worked up about other people. You can just think... Well, you know, don't know what's happening. I don't understand other people. hardly understand myself. (laughs) And uh, not surprising I don't understand anyone else. You know, so um, I don't know why they say the things they do to me or do the things they do to me. Just one of those things, you know. And life just becomes a lot easier. And you have a sort of mystery to everything. So, like, everything's magic suddenly. You suddenly see the trees moving. You wonder if you move them. (laughs) And... uh, you know, you, you you have a different experience. Things aren't just sort of static in this boring way of living. I mean, even being in India is rich. You know, everyone's just moving all the time, and life is full of vibrancy. And when you come back to England, I mean, someone told me once they came back to England after being in India for many years, and they said, "Is it a public holiday?" And uh, they said, "No, no, it's just an ordinary day. You know, it's Monday actually." Said, really? It's so quiet. You know, it's hardly pe- hardly anyone around. You know, it's every, everyone's sort of a bit quiet. In India, it's just like uh, going on all the time. And, you know, it's as though one could live um, imaginatively in this way, just being a lot, having a sense that everything is a bit mysterious. You don't really know, but you've got a, a sense of inquiry. You want to find out about things. And the way you find out about things is quietening your mind down. This is how the Buddha found out about things. He quietened his mind down. He did the mindfulness of breathing. Someone asked the Buddha who he is, and he said, well, your reverence, you must be a god of the highest realm. And he says, no, I'm not a god of the highest realm. And he said, well, you must be a god of the next highest realm. He says, no, I'm not a god of the next highest. Okay, you must be a god of the terrestrial realm. He says, no, I'm not a god of the terrestrial realm. Well, you must be a human being. He said, no, I'm not a human being. So the Buddha is not categorizable by any of these definitions he's in in an undefinable state. We cannot place or fix the Buddha. We can't even say of him accurately that he's an enlightened human being because he says in the scriptures he's not even a human being. He's a Buddha. So now we have a whole new being, a Buddha, which we could um, become. So, some thoughts to go away with. What would drive someone to become a Buddha? What would motivate anyone to practice meditation, sitting still? Do things that the majority of other people, certainly around us, don't do. <coughs> Maybe, as we begin to reflect that we're you know, going to get old, probably going to get ill, might get cancer, might get some other illness, going to die, And we think, well, you know... I'm not really happy with that. I'd like a bit more you know, understanding of what's going on. And uh, maybe that would be a motivation. But maybe it's not enough, because that's just sort of like a rational thought you can have. Maybe if you actually fear getting old, and fear getting ill, and fear dying, you might motivate yourself to um, do something. But if you're a materialist, then you will just think, well, when you're dead, nothing happens. So if, if nothing happens when you're dead, why bother? And actually, the logical conclusion I've come to, I've come to being materialist, is suicide. You know, as soon as you suffer, die, because that way you get rid of suffering. It's the end of suffering, isn't it? If you, if you don't exist, you can't be suffering. Um, so it sort of, for me, materialism doesn't work. I can't think it's that easy. And uh, I, I find the whole Buddhist view rather terrifying. You know, you do something in this life. It affects what you are in the future because what we are now is affected by what we've done in the past because nothing's conditioned. We have conditioned ourselves. And um, what we're going to become in the future is conditioned by what we're going to be doing now. It's terrifying, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I'm coming to that. Yeah, just look- I just want to look at the negative point of view for the moment because, you know, sometimes we need a whip before we get the carrot. <laughs> but thank you for reminding me, just in case I. <laughs> she's very good. She, she's been in groups with me before. She's always got a very quick mind. She's one step ahead of me. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it can be a terrifying way of looking at it. But you're right. It could be, you know, a. Uh, actually, what would be good about that? Yeah, but suppose I was talking about just becoming from one lifetime to another lifetime to another lifetime to another lifetime to another lifetime. To another lifetime, to another lifetime, to another lifetime. What's positive about that? Because mm-hmm. if it's not just I am here, I'm gonna go I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna work. Right. if it's, if it's, if it's if you've got the opportunity to influence things and change to your to life. Yeah. You like to be yeah, yeah, yeah. And well you could look at it from the traditional point of view of the Buddhist, and that is that to gain enlightenment takes Many, many lifetimes. So you've got you know, plenty of time. But uh, the unfortunate thing about Buddhism, because everything's conditioned, is that what you do today is affecting what you become tomorrow. So if you do things that are sort of out of line with what um, might be natural, you will experience suffering in the future. If you do things that are in line with what you might label natural, you will experience things going well together. It's as though nature and you are in some sort of relationship. The world and you are in some sort of relationship. And uh, this is the Buddhist approach, is that human beings are somehow part of um, a process, or one's consciousness is part of the process of being natural. And being natural is becoming more and more expansive. It's like a tree a tree starts off as, a, as an acorn, let's say, a little seed. It's not a tree. It's just an acorn. It has the potential to become a tree, but it's not a tree. And it grows. It grows into a little seedling. And the seedling grows into a sapling. And the sapling grows into a small tree. And the small tree grows into a big tree. And the big tree gets bigger and bigger and bigger until at some point it sort of stops being big and gradually starts disintegrating. But you imagine a state where the tree never stopped. It just went on and on growing. It's as though this is what our human mind can do. Our conscious mind doesn't have to stop. It can go on and on growing, bigger and bigger. Sometimes it's as though we feel as though we're in a prison. It's as though it's a bit all dark and dreary. Um, I found this when I was about eight. I felt as though I was in a prison. Everything was inexplicable. I couldn't understand how things could be as the way they are. It all seemed as though something was wrong somehow. And I, looking back on it, I can see the pattern of my life becoming a Buddhist was that I was looking for something I can only call the light because light brings light into darkness. And if you've got light, you can't have darkness. And it's sometimes like that when you're practicing meditation, you're practicing ethics. It's as though your light gets brighter You become brighter, you become more expansive, you become more interesting, both to yourself and to other people. And um, that's all part of nature. It's sort of natural. You could say it's natural to be a Buddhist. Completely unnatural to be a follower of any other religion, because those people will have won't believe in pratica samadpata. They won't see that things arise in dependence upon conditions because they will fix things like a soul or a god. Um, I mean, if they've got very sort of indeterminate and flexible ways of looking at these things, then they are Buddhists. (laughs) It's not really very much difference. But it's sort of natural to be a Buddhist. And it's natural to be happy. And it's natural to be sad sometimes. And you can change how you're experiencing things by what you're doing now. It's not as though you're forever trapped with what happened to you in your early life. Of course that's going to affect you. But you can change it. What you do right now, this very minute, will make effect affect things for the future. You're not a victim any longer. This is the great and wonderful message of the Buddha. None of us are victims. We are a victim in the sense of uh, previous actions. You know, we're you know, we got inspired, we came here, and now you're a victim of listening to me going on for an hour. And you might be thinking, hey, I'd like to have a break now. <clears throat> but, you know, you could get up and go. That could be your prerogative, but you might be enjoying it. And, uh, but it's very important not to have this mentality of being trapped in your own sort of psychological states. You can do something about them. You can transform them. You can change them. And this is the great message of the Buddha. You can change them in a way that is so so vast and incomprehensible, you can only describe it as mystical or magical. I'd say that if you weren't in touch with this sort of experience, it'd be very difficult to lead the life of a Buddhist. Because being a Buddhist is very, very demanding, very challenging. You've got to think about all the thoughts you're having. Well, first of all, you start thinking about all the things you're doing and all the things you're saying. And then you start thinking about, oh, that thought's not a very skillful thought. And uh, it's very challenging because sometimes you think, wow, oh, this is a lot of hard work. The whole time I'm having to watch myself, what I'm doing and what I'm saying, what I'm um, thinking. And you know, oh, I just want a break. I just want to watch a movie. I just want to go down the pub. just want to, You know, get away from it or go to a party. And uh, that's all right because, you know, you have to make the transition um, bit by bit. But Buddhists have a special um, faculty. Actually, all human beings have a special faculty. Um, Buddhists aren't that special. It's just that Buddhists have woken up to this faculty. And it's called faith or shraddha. It's where you can actually feel that being a human being is being part of a process of growing towards the light. And when you allow yourself to be moved in that way, it's as though your body, your being, is responding to the universe in the right sort of way. When you're not doing that, it's as though you're at odds with things and people, and you notice that about them. When you act a bit unskillfully, you act selfishly. You know, you take a bit, bit of. Um, well, I was going to say a bit of software. You know, that you haven't paid for, and you sort of you don't sleep very well that night because you think, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. You know, sort of, and then you discover it was free actually after it. You that was good. <laughs> or you think actually, no, I'm going to buy it. You know, make it all regularize it or something. You do some little thing, you know, like you sort of beat someone into a car car parking space or something. You think, Yeah, I got you I mean the Indians would do it, I think, yeah, I've got one you on you there, that's great. I might, you know, wouldn't feel bad about it, but they're a pretty amoral bunch of people often. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, the the English might sort of say after you and that might be a skillful means. It might just be because you don't want to be disliked, which actually from a Buddhist point of view would be un possibly unskillful, because it's all about you again. And uh, anyway, where am I going with this? Um, (laughs) The main thing is to feel that you can be... I'm just going to close and I'll answer some questions. Um, The main thing is that you can open yourself up to what's going on in, in the universe, in nature, in what's being natural, and in that way you can be moved and you can be in touch with an inspiration that will help you to make the effort, at least some of the time, to do things that are really skillful. If you do that, you too could find yourself one day sitting under a Bodhi tree of some sort, making enormous progress, tuning in to whatever it is, because it's not an it even, but just tuning in to how things are in a way that you just never imagined before. And when we come together on a day like this, and we listen to a talk, hopefully, like I've just given, the purpose of it is, isn't really to be thinking that much about what I'm saying. It's to the purpose of it is really to start feeling you're tuning in, in a non-rational way even, to the Buddha's message. And we're going to have a puja in a moment, which is a sort of pretty non-rational thing to do. You know, we're going to worship something that doesn't exist. We're going to have gratitude to someone who we can't understand at all. We're not even sure of what it is. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, how would, you ra- how would you have a rational explanation of that to people? I don't know how we do it when we come to certain I think we give them some rational reason. And someone told me it's a bit like giving a baby a dummy to suck, you know, just keeps them quiet for a little while. And, uh, but what the idea of a puja is that you actually open yourself up to something that is really a bit inexplicable. Well, totally inexplicable. But when you've done it, and I know people that do pujas for the first time, they go, wow, that was amazing. And you say, what do you like about it? I don't know, but it was amazing. <laughs> I and mean, they need a reason, but you know, sometimes we do need reasons. But maybe that's what you can think of a Wessex celebration. It's a celebration of the Buddha, a way of opening yourself up to um, the Dharma, the Buddha, the Sangha, all those people that are trying to open themselves up, and in a way just tuning in much more to the nature of things. And if you can do that, life might just be that much brighter and... Um, more interesting. And things might just happen. You might notice that things work out that much better for you. Because if things, if you're having an effect on the world, the world is going to respond in some sort of way to you. So, thank you for listening to me. I've enjoyed talking. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And if you've got some questions, maybe the best thing to do is come talk to me afterwards. Yeah? Okay, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.